Hello and welcome to a podcast. We have done too many. Just let it go, Mike. It's we've done too many. I, I just I got to get this down. It's, it is a podcast. Is you didn't say anything wrong. It yeah. is a podcast. Well, hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio with Mike, Doctor Michael Berg, and we are going to be recording for Theology One Hundred Ten Intro to Theology. Continuing our series on the large catechism for students, and we are going to be discussing now the Lord's Supper we just recorded on baptism earlier today. Uh, we will take the keys last, so we're going a little bit out of order, perhaps. Um, is that okay with you, Mike? Mm-hmm. So we'll take the keys next, and uh, and so we're going to talk Lord's Supper first. And as we talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, we talked about with baptism that the Lutheran Church kind of finds itself in a bit of an odd spot with baptism. Uh, between, I mean, the majority populations in America, at least, the Roman Catholic view and the generic American Protestant view. And the same is going to be true with the Lord's Supper. You have kind of the generic American Protestant view. Now you have Reformed churches that are different, smaller Reformed churches, but on the whole, that's going to view the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. It's something you do to remember what Christ has done for you, but it's not a means of grace. And then you're going to have the Catholic view here, which gets it right that uh, in the sense that God does give grace, forgiveness of sins through the Lord's Supper, but kind of like the Protestants turns it into our work as well um, by emphasizing the uh, bloody re-sacrificing of the Mass uh, that they see taking place uh, in the Mass. And so we, uh, we Lutherans in the middle, we're going to say, unlike the Protestants, it is the body and blood of Christ. We're going to say, unlike the Roman Catholics, it remains also, though, bread and wine. We're going to say, like the Protestants, it is a memorial meal. But we're going to say with the Roman Catholics, it also is uh, the body and blood of Christ given for us, for the forgiveness of sins. Like the uh, Roman Catholics, it's going to be a central part of the divine service um, and frequently celebrated. And uh, and yet, at the same time, we're not going to have the uh, some of the same emphases that will come out of the celebration of the Supper. So students should be reading the large catechism. We're going to assume that you have read that. And we're going to be talking then more broadly about the Supper and how many experience it and maybe some pastoral um, thoughts about it. But the Supper that Jesus institutes on Monday, Thursday, or Holy Thursday in the upper room as they celebrate the Passover feast, um, so it's instituted during Holy Week, uh, which we've been talking about for Mike's Theology 105 class, uh, which brings bre- which brings blessings with it that is poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins and so brings forgiveness, life, and salvation, but that does this by the power of the word. So the Lutheran Church does not hold. It's the uh, celebrant who gives the sacrament its power, but the word of God, uh, which gives it its power, the same as with Holy Baptism, the water and the word and which is properly received in faith in those words uh, that it's been given for us, shed for us, uh, received in faith by those who are repentant for their sins. Um, big picture-wise, Mike, anything that comes to mind regarding the Lord's Supper? I think that, once again, we see God <coughs> using physical means, and it's for you. It's for you. We can get lost into all of these arguments. Um, and they are essential. We need to know the. We need to know the truth. We need to know 
uh, the basics, all that kind of stuff, but it's for you. It's for the forgiveness of sins for you. And to stop and ponder how great and wonderful that it is, is that you have a communion that is vertical with God and is only because of Jesus Christ, but is also horizontal with the church. And since there's only since the church is the body of Christ and you can't break apart the body of Christ, there is only one church, one baptism, one Lord, right, that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, that not not even death nor denominational lines or brick walls can work against this communion, right? So uh, we may not be able to commune with everybody here on earth, but if they're a believer, we do anyway, right? right. Even if I can't go shoulder to shoulder with somebody right now because of our differences or because of uh, time or space or coronavirus, um, I, I am still one with you. And that includes... That includes, uh, you know, Grandma Gertrude is already in heaven, right? And that's just a powerful, powerful thing. We talk, hinted at this last time that giving Holy Communion to uh, a widow and reminding her that you, you are communing with those who have gone before you, uh, try to do that without tears in your eyes. That's pretty hard, and that's been very, a very powerful message throughout uh, history. It's, it's, really, it's really cool when we think about those things. And remember, here's the big picture thing. Where's the arrow going? Is the arrow going from God to me or from me to God? If it's from me to God, that's a red flag. That's a problem. And so maybe, Mike, we can take first uh, this vertical and horizontal aspect, the vertical and horizontal aspects that we can talk of with the Lord's Supper. Let's take the vertical first, if that's all right with you, because I think in Lutheranism that's the most important aspect. Uh, that this is a means of grace, that this is God coming to us. You know what? First, though, before we take the vertical and horizontal, let's um, let's take the incarnation. How's that sound? Sure. Um, so maybe if we make the, the starting point, the incarnation and what it is to have an incarnational theology, that will help explain why we emphasize what's taking place there. So much of the... Uh, so much of what, uh, sorry, Ziggy's blowing up my phone with stupid questions. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, but um, so much of uh, the debate about the Lord's Supper among Protestantism in the 16th century was how could Christ be bodily present, right? And Luther keeps taking that back to the incarnation and his view of Christology. Um, but Mike, you work a lot with the incarnation and, and, and physical things and their relationship to the spiritual. Just um, how does the incarnation play into the Lord's Supper and a Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, if you are if you are going to say Jesus can't and fill in the blank there, you got to stop in your tracks and say, okay, is it because he can't or that he has chosen not to? Right. And so when someone says Jesus can't be physically present there, that's very close to saying Jesus cannot be 100% true God. Right. Uh, and by the way, this is kind of true with Roman Catholicism too. Uh, Roman Catholicism has been accused of a, of a, a soft docetism. Think docetism. It seems it only God uh, Jesus only seemed to be true man. He was true God. And I don't think this is fair to Roman Catholic theology, but there's something there. It only seems to be bread and wine, right? So if you, if you say, uh, 
it can't be Christ's body and blood at the same time, you're going to have a problem with saying it's can't, Jesus can't be 100% true God and 100% true man. But let me, let me make the incarnational thing something that's, that is for us, a for you preaching kind of thing. If God is evangelical, and what I mean by evangelical is that he wants all men to be saved, gospel. If God is evangelical, then he's going to be incarnational. Uh, now, I'm not saying necessarily so, I mean, because God can do anything. But what I'm saying in this way of thinking, it is necessary. Because if God cannot come to us, then we got to go to him. So he needs to come down and live a perfect life so that we can be perfect, so that we his righteousness is legit, so that it's for us. So the incarnation, we may say, is necessary for salvation in the same way in Gethsemane when Jesus says, is there any other way you can take this cup away from me? And the answer is no. If God is evangelical, that is, he wants all men to save, then he is incarnational. And if he is incarnational, then it makes sense that he would continue to be sacramental. And that way, he still comes to us in physical means. And by sacramental there, I would include the word of God, that it's a physical thing. It's, it's literally something that you perceive with the senses. It is words, uh, you know, airwaves beating upon our eardrums. It is ink and paper on a page. It is a man preaching. It is a woman consoling her friend or teaching or whatever. So if God is evangelical, then he is going to be incarnational and it makes sense that he would be sacramental. And I can keep going. It also means he's probably going to be vocational, right? To continue that mode of operation. If, if God is sacramental, then we are going to be liturgical because in the worship service, he's going to be there. So we're going to act a certain way. And we are people of body and time and space, and so we are we ha- we can't we have to act a certain way. We can't we can't be purely spiritual. And I would say also historical that this is actually going to be in time and space. And so Holy Communion fits into that picture, that pattern, that that modus operandi of God. Well, good, thank you. <laughs> and uh, if we if we then take maybe the vertical and the horizontal, and I think this is one reason that the Lord's Supper is really a lens into someone's whole theology. You can really tell out tell a lot about someone's theology if you if you talk about the Lord's Supper. Uh, the the emphasis on the horizontal and the vertical um, is that emphasis going to be God down or us up, and is that emphasis on the vertical going to be greater or lesser than the emphasis on the horizontal? So you have you will have churches where the emphasis is on the horizontal, where this is largely just about community. You will have churches where the emphasis is on the vertical, but it's the vertical of my confession to God or the re-sacrifice of the Mass. You will have churches where the emphasis is on the vertical, where it's on God to us. The ideal balance is to recognize that there's a little bit of everything in there. Um, It is a confession of faith, right? This is why we practice uh, close communion and confessional Lutheran churches. But we can make that too much about the horizontal. Exactly. Um, So that's not the, it's not primarily an expression of fellowship, but it is. Uh, So there's something to it being a confession of faith. It is about community. It does remind us um, of our neighbor. Uh, And oftentimes in marital counseling, I would tell the couples, go to communion together. um, And as you go up, I want you to think about your spouse's sins. And then I want you to see what Jesus has to say. And it would often end in tears, right? That God gives this forgiveness. 
which binds us horizontally in the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> but primarily, the Lord's Supper is about the forgiveness of sins that it gives to the recipient coming up. <clears throat> and ideally, um, the Christian will hold those <clears throat> in balance. Um, and so what we're receiving in the Lord's Supper is forgiveness, salvation, life. And yet, uh, like baptism, we're receiving those things. But it's not entirely like baptism. We baptize people uh, as infants. We um, might baptize someone who's not yet a full communicant member of the church. Um, we hold baptism as necessary for salvation, right? For the time being, during this pandemic, there might be some who, who don't commune for a while. But I highly doubt pastors would tell someone, put off your baptism, or Lutheran pastors at least, to put off your baptism until until afterwards. What is what is kind of this difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper in these things, Mike? Yeah, I mean, we 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 got to be careful not to. We don't pit one against the other, right? Some people will say, "Well, we have the Word of God, and so we don't need Holy Communion or whatever." As if you're as if it was there was different different Christs or something like that. Baptism um, is a one time thing, so that's that would be something that's different. Um, it's not like we go around saying, I am communed as I, I did commune, right? Where we would say I am baptized versus I was baptized. Um, the baptismal life leads us to Holy communion as much as it leads us to confession, absolution, confession, absolution in a different way, because it's kind of like a, it's a, it's like a baptism is a daily repentance and, and forgiveness. It's a, it's a daily baptism in that sense. But if you're going to be given life, new life, and being a part of the family, a good family is going to feed you. And this is how you're going to be fed, not just through the word of God, but through, but through this, this meal too. And notice what God is doing here. Um, from the very beginning, hearing and eating had to do with worship and our connection with God, right? Hear the word of God. And in the Garden of Eden, eat this and don't eat that. So listen to my word, take my word that you don't need to eat from here. There's some things you don't need to know and cannot know. And then, but eat from the tree of life. And so this word, this pattern of word and meal is through the Old Testament uh, with sacrifices in the temple, but also with the Seder meal and the Passover and, the, and then eventually the synagogue service. And it's natural that would come into uh, the worship service of the, of the Christian church as well. Um, and there is a maturity to Holy Communion. Um, and we can debate what age you should be communed. Um, um, that, that's for a different time. Um, but there is some maturity there. And here's how I, I like to think about it, and especially when it comes to who should commune at the table and who should we not allow to commune at the table and where should we have communion, all that, these fellowship kind of questions. From very early on, again, eating had something to do with, with a soul thing. Like eating's not just like, if eating was just a physical thing, then it would be like um, putting gas into a car, right? I just get my fuel to keep going. And probably that's how we Americans tend to think about it too much, where other cultures like they actually savor their food. Why are the French who have fatty food and French fries for all the time skinny and we're fat? 
Well, because they don't eat so much because they savor their food. That's why. Um, it, it's it, think a big like a big family uh, gathering, like an, an Italian what family or um, a Puerto Rican family or something like that. We Americans tend to think about it too much. So when eating happened in the ancient world, that was a spiritual thing on some level. You didn't just eat with anybody, right? Um, this was something special. You broke bread with somebody and that was a spiritual thing, whether it be inviting a guest, this idea of the ancient Near East and it's a beautiful picture of hospitality, or if it, if it meant something that you were, you were, you were invited to a, a uh, a more important person's house for a wedding or something like that. And Jesus even uses pictures that when you're invited, don't take the seat yeah. of primacy, but take the, there was a lot of play, play in these things. And you do not understand Jesus eating with a tax collector or a sinner until you understand that. Right. And that it wasn't about the person, what they did or who they were or their standing, but do they trust God or not? Right. Do they take him at his word? So word and meal put together. And by the way, people get so worked up about how the church is being, uh, exclusive when it's um, not allowing people at the table. We do this in every aspect of our life. Um, I used to use this example, but can't anymore. I would say, what if the president of the United States went to, you know, North Korea and ate with a dictator there that would, you know, blow up a, um, a years of uh, foreign policy and geopolitics would go crazy and the markets would go crazy. But we can't say that anymore because it actually happened. But you get what I'm saying. Like, you wouldn't go dine at some crazy church. You wouldn't go down there and sing at a Westboro Baptist church. If you don't know who they are, go Google them. Um, we understand distinctively, instinctively that eating with somebody is a communion. It's something spiritual. It's not just fuel for us. And God created us that way. Even before the fall, he made it. This is how we're going to be one. And this is how you're going to be one with each other. Um, these are special events, family meals, uh, uh, a wedding banquet, uh, the meal that served at a, at a wake for a funeral, a business meeting, a state dinner, all of this kind of stuff. So I think that helps us to, to realize the physicality of God is an incarnational God and that these things are spiritual and they do matter and they are quite profound. And I would say there's some of our greatest moments. There are some of our greatest memories. There are some of our, our greatest connections to people. And that God would then describe heaven as the wedding supper of the Lamb just makes perfect sense. Yeah, and, and so as we talk about the Lord's Supper too, uh, a helpful thing to maybe address is the elements that are used in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so when, we, when you go to church, we, we think of uh, bread and wine. Most people think of uh, the the bread as being a little styrofoam-like wafer. Uh, the idea with the first Lord's Supper is this was unleavened bread for point of distribution and so to not have crumbs everywhere. Uh, many churches have gone to using the wafer, and then the wine is often Mogan David. I don't I don't know why. It's kosher, it's kosher wine, yeah. but um, and uh, we can speak of the the common cup or the individual cups. That it's given out, and we won't. Um, let's not get into that debate today, okay. especially with the the virus. I know people are all concerned about different things, but maybe uh, the specific Lutheran emphasis 
and the point of the supper is for it to be received, right? We see in the the Roman Catholic Church, um, there will be Eucharistic ad- adoration, the monstrance, which is usually like a gold thing, looks like a sun with the host in it. It's interesting. It's Aug- like a trophy, yeah. Yeah, at Augsburg, one of the things that the emperor tried to say was everyone has to participate in the Corpus Christi parade, and the Lutherans refuse. Um, but there can also be a... Um, a lack of attention to the purpose of the supper and the elements in other churches where uh, different elements will be used. We're going to have, you know, soda and crackers, or uh, we won't get into every possible way it could go wrong. But uh, maybe if we talk a little bit about the elements, right? Uh, Christ used bread and wine. And uh, we can probably save at this point debates on grape juice, but I'll just say grape juice, as we have it today, didn't exist really before Welch, who was a Methodist doctor who didn't like alcohol in communion, so he comes up with Welch's grape juice. Um, but uh, but this is, uh, this is it's not that we shouldn't treat the Lord's Supper <coughs> with reverence. Uh, we can sometimes be terribly irreverent with the Lord's Supper, and I don't think that's a good thing. Um, for instance, if we have the individual cups, hopefully we're at least treating them with respect and how we put them out and dispose of them. Uh, historically, you would take the wine that was that was left, um, which we call the reliquii, the leftover bread and wine, and the pastor or elders would consume that at the end. I had the practice in my parish of taking the cup, common cup last, and I would finish it. And usually, mm-hmm. if if you get a sense for your congregation, this is not mm-hmm. a, a full chalice that you're mm-hmm. that you're draining. Um, the individual cups, uh, we had gone to glass ones that we would wash in between, but we would rinse them and then. Uh, it's pretty common to dispose of the reliquia historically, maybe in the ground outside. Many churches would have, I believe it was called a patina. Paschina. Paschina, um, where leftover uh, um, wine that had been used in the supper uh, as to be the blood of Christ for those receiving the supper would be disposed of. The host uh, that have been consecrated are usually um, set aside to be used in the next supper. And, uh, and so it's not that we're irreverent towards these things, or that we, I pray we're not. Um, this is something that God has used for a holy purpose. Just as after the, uh, after a baptism, I think most churches and pastors will take that water from the baptism and pour it outside into the ground, not you know just down the drain. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the main point of the supper is that it be consumed. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, "Take and eat, take and drink." Um, any thoughts you have, Mike, with the elements, with the reception of the supper? Um, maybe this is a place where we can talk about how we tend to receive it. You know, this historical posture is kneeling, but that's not the only posture for receiving it. Um, but anything that comes to mind with that, and maybe even in the light of this pandemic and churches having to do these things differently, um, sometimes we take communion to shut-ins. Some churches are having, you know, not drive-through like you're going through a drive-through, but it's safer to do outdoors, but the pastor is available. Anything that comes to mind with that, with the elements, with the actual celebration of the supper, with the distribution, um, with the reliquia, anything of that sort? Yeah, so uh, what we'll call it is like the usus, right? When it's used, that it's we, sh- we know for sure it's Christ's body and blood. Uh, but we don't want to take that too far and to what's called receptionism, that it's only Christ's body and blood when we actually, you know. Although we got to be careful because it's kind of the default view for a lot yeah, of synodical conference Lutherans was receptionism. And right. I... I personally find it a 
kind of comical view, but... Yeah, it's not very helpful. But don't let me get in trouble for it. So. Like the word of God, like if the powers... Take for people that this will be yeah. Christ's body when it touches your lips. I had one guy who, uh, he's like, it's called the predestination of grapes, grapes and, and bread. Um, <laughs> you I'll know, stop like, now. Like, if, if, if he doesn't take it, if it, if it falls, this is great seminary, you know, if, if you put it into the hand, but the, he drops it, then can you just like fling it around, you know, yeah. like just this ridiculous kind of stuff. So, um, the reason that you got to know the historical context, the reason we're talking about that is because there were people who would then like in a monstrance or, or this Corpus Christi festival where it would literally be prepared paraded around and that is where it becomes an idol like you're worshiping corpus christi latin for body of christ and so if you if you're a a godfather fan uh, i think godfather 2 has a parade there there's a picture of mary and people are putting dollar bills i think there's a monstrance in that too you can go to catholic churches today and there'll be a side chapel there's a monstrance there and you can bow down and pray to it to that to that wafer um people would take wafers from like from communion and keep them, you know, as a keepsake kind of thing, like a relic kind of thing. So we're fighting against that. But on the other side, uh, to say that we can be absolutely sure that, you know, unless it is, uh, you know, uh, outside of this complete use, then it's worthless. I think just be careful. You don't, we don't have a direct word of God on that. And the second thing is, even if you believe like the second, the, you know, the last person communes and everything reverts back or something. Just, it's kind of, you just, it's just silly talk to begin with that somehow that this doesn't matter anymore. I, I like to use the analogy of the American flag. So when you're done with an American flag, that's getting ragged or torn or whatever, you burn it and you're like, wait a minute, we're not supposed to burn the American flag or whatever. What you're saying is this is different. And so if or I, your wedding dress from your wedding. Yeah. If I put this down a different drain, you're like, well, it's going to go to the same place anyway. Um, hello, you know, this is something different. Like we even, I've even heard a pastor like, well, I just throw it in the urinal just to make sure that they're not going to worship, you know, like, hello, this is not our battle right now. You got to know your context. The battle for us today is people don't actually believe it's Christ's body and blood post enlightenment. And so to be respectful of that, I think is really kind of, I wouldn't say necessary, but I think it, it call, we are called to do that as a confession in a post-enlightenment era. If we were living in a superstitious era in, you know, Hamburg, Germany, you know, in whatever, 1580, whatever, well then, yeah, maybe we would make a point to say that this is not to be used in Corpus Christi Festival or whatever. So know your context, people, you know? Um, so there are ways you can do this without being like what we call liturgical Nazis, right? You know, um, consuming the rest of, of the wine, um, glass, um, Jesus jiggers instead of plastic. Um, when you receive it, put your hands out, either stick your tongue out where the, uh, pastor can put it right on there, put your hands out, don't handle it. Don't grab, grab it. You know, put your two hands, you're coming as a beggar, come and put your tongue onto the wafer. I think that's a good way to do it. Feel free to grab onto that uh, chalice when, when, you, when you have it. Um, you can make confessions uh, of saying, if, if the pastor says, the body of Christ given for you, say amen after that. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can do this without being uh, too big of a jerk. And you can promote that, the, that this actually is real. And in a, in a postmodern age, when, again, we're trying to 
put the physical and the spiritual, kind of trying to put this puzzle back together. This uh, Holy Communion and the liturgy that comes out of that, and all the cool stuff that we kind of threw out with the, 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 the bathwater with the, the baby that we threw out, um, we should be thoughtful about this, not just bringing everything back willy-nilly just to be cool, but to be thoughtful about this and to actually make a, a solid confession. If God is evangelical, then he is going to be incarnational and it makes sense that he would be incarnational as well, or sacramental as well. Um, yeah, the, I think that the American flag analogy, I think, is the best for me with the reliquii. Even if you totally are going to stand that this is no longer holy, it's just the same molecules and everything. Well, it was still used for a, a, a pretty, pretty sacred purpose, like the most sacred of all purposes. And so uh, I think to be respectful, there's nothing wrong with being respectful. And I think in our evangelical world where we're where we're breathing in evangelical thought all the time. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not being critical here too much. But um, when it comes to the sacraments, they, they, there's a very distinctive way of thinking about those things that it is kind of nice to be a little bit countercultural that way, right? Um, you, you, you're not impressing me if you're flippant about Holy Communion and its elements, right? You're, I, I, I'm not impressed with your confession with that. You know, I, I think you are you are being a shock jock or you are, uh, you know, you haven't been very thoughtful about that. And then maybe uh, finally, if we just take uh, preparation for Holy Communion, I think uh, at Luther's time, you had these elaborate preparations for Holy Communion or people were afraid to go so that many in the medieval church were communing once a year on mm -hmm. Easter. Um, in uh, early Lutheranism in America, you had maybe the same thing with pietism, where some churches only offer communion four times a year, and it became a big event. That being said, one of the good things that came out of that was announcing for communion, and I wish we had a way of bringing that back. <clears throat> um, maybe now on the other side, uh, people don't even many people don't even think of preparing for mm -hmm. Holy Communion. It's just it's Communion Sunday. You go up and you receive it. Um, <clears throat> Luther does say about communion. Uh, Fasting and other outward preparations may serve a good purpose, so it's not that they can't serve a purpose. Uh, Mike, you teach the worship class, so on some of these things I like to default to you. Um, I don't know what you bring up with students or what in general. What are some things that maybe Christians could keep in mind regarding preparation for, with, the obviously, the caveat? There's nothing that you're going to do that makes you worthy of the yeah. supper. Yeah, you're um, worthy because you believe. Right, right? but but are there things yeah. that maybe historically yeah. have been helpful, could and, be helpful? And we need to be careful <laughs> about that and, and really and really nail that down because I think um, with our fear of breaking fellowship laws and our fear of of coming— Well, I had, I had somebody say, I was taught you're supposed to go four times a year, which is a misunderstanding of Luther saying at least you should go four times a year, otherwise don't even call yourself a Christian. <coughs> which he shouldn't have said, but um, I go six times a year and I go prepared, you know, as like something you're doing for God. And then you have those people who are actually honest with themselves and they never come because they never feel like they are prepared. So we got to be careful that we don't, I mean, these are pe people, there are people that stay away from God's grace because they don't think they're good enough. Hello, that's a problem. Right. That is a very, very big problem. And I think that if our pastors knew how big a problem that that was, they they would be appalled 
um, that their people are thinking about this. And so going to like, for instance, Holy Communion more often and the excuse, well, I don't want people to think they have to go. Well, if they think they have to go, then you got a bigger problem on your hands. And I think you'd be surprised how, how, how we have implied that. On the other side, you know, you don't want to go in a flippant way. This is a big deal. Um, I, I think that there are prayers in beginning of every Lutheran, I'm sure Catholic hymnal, that an Anglican uh, hymn book, book of common prayer. that have prayers there that you can use. Absolutely fantastic. Do that. Um, but finally, what, what do you, what do you, how are you to examine yourself? Am I a sinner? Yes or no? We should have one of those, like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, ask a question and then it goes down the arrows kind yeah. of those. Are, are you a sinner? Yes. Did Jesus save your sorry butt? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is Christ's body and blood is there for the forgiveness of sins? Yes. If you go those three right and all of those three right, you are prepared. You are prepared. I mean, that's finally what it's going to come down to. Should I go if I'm holding anger against somebody else? You know, that, that's a big question. Um, well, nobody would ever go to Holy Communion if we answered that question, honestly, right? What you're saying, what, what, what the point of that is, is we're all in the same sinful boat here and we're all coming to Christ. And so can we please put a, a, a away these uh, piddly little crappy differences, right? And I've had that question come very often where... Um, someone would say, I'm still holding a grudge against somebody else, you know, and by the fact that they were working on it meant that they had faith, which meant they were prepared. It's the person who is so flippantly angry, angry that they don't think they're wrong. That's when you're in a state of, do you really trust God in this? Or, so the question always gets back to, are you a believer or not? Right. And it's the same way we're going to, to ask the question, is this person a believer who is an angry jerk? Well, is he struggling with that? Does he admit that at least he has a problem or does he think that he's righteous before God, even in his anger? That's a question about faith and, um, whether the person has faith or not. And it's the same question for the preparation of Holy communion, I think anyway. So, um, ask yourself those three questions, say a prayer, um, come back, um, but do it with great joy. Don't do it like I have to do this one thing before I have to do another thing. And the signing up for communion, I'm glad you brought that up, right? That, that's a, actually a holdover from confession absolution. That the, in pietism, there's this idea you had to go through confession absolution before you did Holy Communion. That was part of your preparation. That's a fine one. That's a, that's a good one. Um, and we do that when we go visit uh, people in the nursing homes. We do confession absolution before we do Holy Communion. And we do it in church, right, yep. before that. But that became you announce for communion, you leave a message for the pastor, you sign a card or a piece of paper as you go in. really had nothing to do with Holy Communion. It had to do with uh, confession absolution and preparation for Holy Communion. Um, so to divide those two things up, I think, are important as well. Um, but come with joy. My goodness, this is... This is not something you're doing for God to get a check mark by or, or, or if it's some sort of spiritual cleansing that you do before that. The cleansing's up there when you get Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so once again, notice this emphasis on God's grace. Um, you are worthy when you know you are unworthy. But at the same time, an amazing thing is happening. If I were to tell people, Jesus Christ in the flesh is going to be at the Pfizer Forum tomorrow at 10 a.m., People would line up, right? Well, if he had toilet paper. Right. Uh, but um, but here he is in the Lord's Supper for us. 
And so we rejoice at this gift. Um, we rejoice that this gift unites us in faith and shows our unity of faith. Um, but mostly we rejoice that we are part of God's family, that we get to come to the family meal that is joined with the word. We will leave off there. Students, make sure you are reading the large catechism and taking notes on it. Listeners, we hope you are getting something out of this. And in the meanwhile, in, face, in the face of all the uncertainty uh, in the world right now, let the bird fly.